Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Liz, welcome. Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. Thank you very much. Pleased to be here. Ah, it's great to see you. Sherry, aren't you excited? I'm very excited. Liz is one of our favorite people, but I have to tell you, in the way of introduction, this I am excited to have you on because, and this is going to sound weird, but you are someone that I am actually a little bit intimidated by. <laughs> and I mean that in a good way, not a bad way. I, I find you, Liz, to be brilliant. Uh, you're not afraid to push back. There are times when I have said things or written things that you've said, no, wait a minute, let's talk about this. And honestly, not a ton of people do that. And I love it. I, I I just do. And in your professional life, you're very successful. You are determined, you're empathetic, you are a leader. And those are a lot of pretty impressive qualities. And it's just a touch bit intimidating, but you're also a good friend that we've gotten to know over many months now. And we just love you and we're happy to have you here. This is a really vulnerable uh, and and empowering, I think, thing that we're going to do today. We got a little bit of a different format for this episode, Sherry. Yeah, yeah, we're going to read um, pieces of something that our good friend Liz has written, little segments um, of an essay that she wrote and then ask her to respond. And it's the reason that we asked her to come on the podcast was when we first saw this piece that she wrote, it was powerful and we wanted to talk about it. You still down with this, Liz? Or up with it, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, let's, let's dive right in. Why not? Right. Um, so we, Liz is the, the loving wife of an alcoholic husband, which is a very you know typical setup, typical relationship status for people that we have on the podcast. And certainly that is what you and I represent as well, Sherry. The, um, when, when people think about alcoholic relationships, they often picture a wife that is deciding to stay or to go. And we actually did a whole podcast episode called Should I Stay or Should I Go?, but they're off, often picturing a wife who's making this difficult decision or whether to stay or to leave an alcoholic husband. But for many of the relationships that go through this, it is way, way, way more complicated than that. And Liz, you are a perfect example of how complicated things can get. And so let me dive right in by reading the, in one of the opening parts of this essay that we wanna to discuss today. So these are your words, Liz. I'm not sure I love you anymore. He hesitated to say those words, afraid of hurting me, in case he's wrong, but clearly needing to share his inner turmoil. My immediate response was relatively calm. Of course I cried, but quietly. The anxiety that had been dogging me recently disappeared because now I had my answer. Now I knew what I had been fearing. Now I knew that I had been picking up subtle signals. Now the words had been spoken. Liz, 
alcoholism makes the situation worse. Alcohol covers the pain. And my question here is, is this all about alcoholism or is there, is there more to it? Is there, um, you know, life getting in the way and the stress of work and just all the things that are involved in a relationship, alcohol or not? Can you tell us what's going on with this first segment of what you wrote? Um, I can try. That was um, a big crisis that we had, I guess, about two months ago now. And um, what one of the big pieces of it turned out to be was my husband was in a really... Um, depressive crisis. So, I mean, just really, really severe depression and was trying to figure out what he was feeling and, you know, lack of feelings for me. And um, it's, it's been a complicated year on all kinds of fronts. That was, I think the third time he tried to leave me this year. Um, Once it was just my sobriety's got to be my priority. And I just like trying to be married and work out the issues in our relationship that's just too complicated another time it was just that um he had come back from a break with his stepmother and that's the town he grew up in it's much smaller it's much more human scaled he's got friends there and then he came back here to the big city where you know we have a much more isolated life and kind of rejected me and the entire environment part and parcel and it was really hard to separate out those two things and then this third time, um, it ended up being this this big, you know, depression crisis. So, um, you know, I mean, he wasn't drinking at any of those times. Well, kind of the first one, but that was just a teeny tiny little relapse. Um, but there's all this other stuff going on. And you know, one of the conclusions he's come to, and I think is probably a valid conclusion, is that, you know, the depression is underlying the alcohol. And so there's that going on. And then there's, you know, the, the general global mental health crisis going on with COVID and, and all of the impacts that's having on people. Um, he's also been through a situation over the past year where his company went through a restructuring and he took a voluntary departure package with that and is currently in this process of this whole retraining and everything. But it's basically another piece of security that's been taken away from him. Um, our dog died. Um, <laughs> that, that was a relatively long process with long illness. Um, my husband has had various health issues. Um, I'm geographically isolated from my family. He's estranged from his mother and was orphaned by his father about five years ago. So yeah, I, I don't think it's all alcohol. I think, you know, it can't all be alcohol. It's, it is life stuff too. And trying to make sense of all of that on a good day is hard enough. But when you then start trying to put, you know, early sobriety with somebody who part of the reason that they were drinking is they didn't have good emotional coping skills. And so you put that all into the mix and it just gets really, really messy. And we were both so worn down by, you know, the previous months and years of, of all of this stuff that happened to us. And I realized what had happened was we basically became like 
two drowning people who were pulling each other down because you, you know how like if sometimes if you rescue a drowning person and you don't know how to do it properly, they can actually pull you under rather than you saving them. So if you've got two flailing people who are both trying to cling to one another, like that's just a bad situation because you're both going under. And, and that's kind of what happened to us this year is we just kind of both went under. I think it's really fascinating because we all know that alcohol is used medicinally by many most, I don't know, maybe all of us who, who cross the line into addiction. It's not a particularly effective or efficient medicine, but that is how it gets used. And when you talk about all of these underlying issues, and then you take away the one thing that's bringing some kind of soothing to him, um, whether that's right or wrong, uh, it, yeah, it, it's like shining a spotlight in his face, I'm sure, of all these other pain points. And I'm sure, I, th I think your description of, of two drowning people is perfect because he's just flailing and trying to figure something out and maybe dissolving the marriage is the solution. Maybe it's not kind of, kind of back and forth almost, um, just trying to find something to ease the pain. The, the next uh, segment of this that I'd like to read, Liz, um, your wheels are spinning a little bit. Your, your head is going a million miles an hour. How, how do you separate? Uh, how do you plan for divorce? Who lives where? How will we function in our jobs? Uh, that, that's kind of what's going on. And then you wrote these words. I can, I can plan an entire life without him in a day, but I can't imagine life without him. Not real life, not even for an instant. That's really powerful, by the way. How do you even begin the process of separating two intertwined lives after 20 years? I asked him that night. I don't know, he said, crying beside me. The next morning, when he came around to that side of the house, I said, I see you're crying too. All morning, he replied. Would you like a hug, I asked? Yes, he answered sincerely, but with self-deprecating irony. We stood there clinging to each other, crying. I'm just so lost, he repeated. Tentative words were exchanged. I realized that the outcome of this episode was far less sure than I had thought. It's almost like whiplash. This has all taken place over the course of a very short period of time, right, Liz? And, yeah. and, and now here you are, you thought it was over, and now that conclusion is, is far less certain. Can you describe a little bit for us what that was like? Um. I, it's really hard. It was, um, I, I was kind of in shell shock. I mean, so much was going on emotionally that I was a little bit numb, but, um, you know, I mean, you know, what can you do when somebody tells you they don't love you anymore? I mean, you can't argue them into loving you anymore. So, you know, my conclusion at that point in time was just, you know, okay, well, I can't do anything about this. So, you know, it is what it is. And I just need to deal with my emotions kind of thing. And, um, you know, after that first day and evening, um, he started to express more and more doubts. And, and even before he had said it, he said, I hesitate to tell you this because I might be wrong. Like even before he said it, he was calling into question whether it was actually true or not, or it was just some sort of expression of, of some other emotion that was going on. And he didn't, he didn't know how to put it into words. And this was the best he could do. 
And um, so by that day, I, you know, I already started to realize that for him, it was a lot, you know, a lot less black and white than I had thought it was when he had announced it the previous day. And like I said, I mean, you know, my, my post-traumatic problem solving brain, what does it do? Somebody tells me, okay, I want a divorce, but you know, we can't really like separate really for the next, you know, until he finishes his retraining and we know what we're doing, where we're going, if we sell the house or somebody buys the house from the other one or whatever. So like I had to immediately come up with a coping strategy to get us through sort of the next nine months. And that's kind of what my brain did. And that was also, I think that's a coping strategy because it allows me to think about stuff and to not think about my emotions as much when I'm doing that. Um, so then, you know, by the next day, like, I just see how, how upset he is by this thing. And, you know, we start talking and I realize he's starting to call into question what he said. And by that night, he found me sort of sobbing on the couch that evening. And I don't, you know, I know I kind of sort of like, just stuff came pouring out of me, what I said and pain and stuff like that. And it ended up with him taking me into his arms and holding me against his chest, almost like an infant and basically saying something like, you know, I'm less and less sure about what I said to you all the time. And it just so happened that the next day, it, it, it couldn't have happened in a better week if it had to happen because by the next day, the next day we had, um, a couples counseling appointment and we both were seeing our individual therapist later in the week. So, um, we went to the couple's counselor and sort of, you know, walked her through what had happened over the few days before that. And by the end of the session, you know, the conclusion was basically he was in a se severe depressive episode. And that's actually what this was about. Um, and we needed to get him care quickly, both so that he was feeling better, but also because I was in such a bad state at this point in time. And I was trying to plan a vacation um, which I desperately needed in order to rest and get my sanity back and all of this. So she's trying to have this rational conversation with him about, okay, we need to get you care and we need to do this soon so that Liz can get off on vacation because you know, she needs this. So, you know, can you do this for her kind of thing? Um, and then, um, what we agreed was, well, we agreed. I, I asked him if he wanted me to go with him to, his therapy appointment later in the week. Um, and he did, and he said, yes, I want you to come and, you know, tell her what you've witnessed this week. So I sort of went, got invited in for a few minutes to sort of recount everything and then got invited to leave again. And then, you know, they had the conversation about what next steps in his care as a result of all of this. Um, so, you know, what started off with the week of, of him saying he didn't love me anymore and, and he wanted to leave me by the end of the week was, there was no longer a question of our separating. We just were recognizing that he was in a severe crisis emotionally. And, um, you know, there was sort of this team that was simultaneously mobilized to take care of him and get him out of crisis, but also to get me off on my vacation so that I could do some recovery on my own. So yeah, it was a bit of whiplash that week. Yeah, no question. You address, in your essay, you address the topic of change. And I think it's really, really important. I want to read this section. It change, um, when Sherry and I have talked about the, toward the end of my drinking, the status of our relationship, she has often said, 
it was almost one of these, the devil you know versus the devil you don't know situations. I had tried to quit drinking so many times that she was almost, she almost preferred that I just keep drinking because as miserable as that was, at least she knew what to expect. There is so much change that takes place in an alcoholic relationship. And when you talk about the underlying issues that are driving the alcohol consumption, the, the, the amount of change that might be taking place is just astronomical. So like in your situation, all the things, the, the, the job status, the family, the dog, just all of it, there's so much going on. And so I, I wanna read what you wrote about change um, and then kind of ask you to respond. There is no status quo. We're in change whether we like it or not. The thing is, I don't know where this change will lead us. Am I scared? Damn straight. But this, I explained to him, is why I'm in individual therapy. I have to learn to do hard things and I have to do it alone. I have to confront and traverse the storms. So I think that paragraph applies to a lot of people and a lot of things. And I'm, I'm glad you put it into words the way you did. Um, anyone who's been in a relationship like this faces massive amounts of change and the way they handle it, um, you know, kind of is the make or break for, for how extracting themselves from the painful situation is going to go. Um, or, you know, so the question that I had originally posed for myself to ask you here about this paragraph is, is the change is it from alcoholism? Is it marriage stress? Is it just adulthood in general? I think I, I think I know the answer. The answer is all of the above because we've, we've already talked about this. Um, what was your husband as aware of, uh, the amount of fluctuation that was taking place in your life and the need for change as you were like, do you feel like you guys were going through this together or was, or were you kind of, you could see the big picture and he couldn't, um, was there a disconnect there, or do you feel like you guys um, were were prepared for whatever comes together? Does that make sense? Uh, I guess it depends on at what point in time you're asking that question for. But maybe overall, I can say I, I think what happened was all of that stuff kind of crept up on us. I mean, you know, we've, we've sort of been doing what I call forensics over the past, not even a year, trying to figure out like, like how did things get so bad? And, and by things, I don't just mean his, you know, alcoholism. I mean, like our relationship and each of us individually where we were and all of that. And we've just realized, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like nothing good has happened to us. Like there's been a lot of good over the past eight years, but we just went through this period where it was like the perfect storm. And, and we never ever had breathing space in between these things that hit us. It was just like one thing after another kind of thing. And when that happens, it's, it's like the alcoholism itself. It's progressive. It's like you gradually get worn down and each time you have less and less resilience and, and you just don't realize it because it's bit by bit. And it's not until you're sort of like here and you look back to there that you suddenly realize, you know, this, this huge kind of um, 
abyss that has kind of opened at your feet. So I think the thing is, you know, it all kind it was very insidious and it built up very gradually. And what happened as we went through this, like each of us were coping less and less well, and therefore our relationship was gradually getting less and less good. Um, and, you know, we were both individually asking ourselves questions about, you know, okay, is, is this the end of the road? You know, did, like, have we just, you know, done the time that we were meant to do together or whatever? And it was just, there was just so much that we didn't even know where to start. Like, it was like a giant knot. And how do you start untangling it? Like, we didn't even know where the end was. So it's almost like, um, you know, the, I can't remember the exact riddle, but there was this thing about the riddle of, you know, how do you undo the knots? And the answer is actually, you take a sword and you just cut through it kind of thing. And, and that's kind of what this year I think has been like us. It's been such a crisis that it just, it just wrought everything in two. And that's allowing us to gradually pick up the pieces and put them back together and start figuring out. I mean, you know, it really is forensics because there's all these little pieces that we have to look at and look at from different angles and start to put back together. Um, and also, I think one of the things that has helped us um, start to to see things more clearly is, is we've had the great luxury of actually spending quite a bit of time apart physically this year, but in a way that wasn't um, overly dramatic because it wasn't like, okay, we're going to do a trial separation or something like that, that in and of itself is anxiety inducing. It was just you know, he's like, okay, listen, I've got the flexibility in my schedule. I'm going to go visit my stepmother and spend some time, you know, seeing friends and getting fresh air near the sea. And then we decided to have the separate vacations this summer so I could go off and see friends and, and get rest and all of that. And I actually think being physically separated was really, really good because it gives an opportunity for like all your stress hormones to go down and everything. Because when you're trying to do that and you're in the same space, there's always kind of that little bit of apprehension, like, is this going to go well or not well or whatever. And in our case, it was, you know, we were, we were emailing, we were talking, but we weren't constantly in each other's space. So it just let it let our bodies settle so that our minds could start to settle. I love how you describe how these things build over time slowly. And until you look back and say, here's where I am now. And this is where I was a long time ago. You don't realize how much, you know, pain and suffering and, and trauma has built up how much the chasm has grown as you described mm -hmm. it. Um, I totally relate to that. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about and Sherry and I've talked about as my alcoholism, as, as I crossed that line into addiction and then it got worse and worse, that was driven by some of our career choices. For instance, we owned our own business and that was a different kind of stress than when I worked for a big company. And, you know, I could easily have looked at it and said, gosh, this, this stress from being a small business owner is what caused my alcoholism damn small business. Had I just stayed in corporate America in a regular nine to five, this wouldn't have happened. But I don't look at it that way. I look at it like if I had, if I had kept in, in more of a, a regular, a normal job, uh, whatever that means, I guess, um, the stress would have been lower, but I would have slowly gotten to where I was. So I'm actually grateful for that stress because 
it pushed me to a point where I had to make decisions and I had to make changes that it, you know, I might've been in my sixties instead of in my forties um, when the change was required. So I'm wondering, you, you know, you talk about being in that, that trauma of this past year, are you able to be thankful for that at all because of what it, it's forced you to face or is it just pain, pain, pain and it's hard to see anything to be thankful for? I think it might be too early for that kind of wisdom. Okay. But, but the one thing I can say is um, since we were apart this summer and we're back together, um, the dynamic in our relationships is very, very different than it was. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more, um, I don't know if joy is the right word, but um, just posit positivity and, you know, a lot more um, play, play, there's a lot more play in our relationship than there has been for a really long time. And so even though it hasn't been all sunshine and roses since I've been back, as you know, um, it's, it's like, we're a team again. And, you know, even as he's been struggling still the past few weeks, um, there's very much been a connection that has remained, you know, even when we discuss difficult things, um, it, it's, it's not tense. It hasn't been, um, conflictual. It's just really, you know, we're sitting on the same side of the table instead of staring each other down kind of thing. And um, so, so yeah, I don't know if I, like I said, I think it's too early to be grateful, but, you know, I, I think we're starting to get to the point where we've got a bit of clarity and, you know, a bit of lucidity and can start to see a path forward. That's great. That's great. Liz, the last piece of this essay that I want to read to you, this, this really stood out to me. Um, it's, it, you're really hard on yourself in this, this paragraph. And I, I think it's important to read because I think the sentiment that you express here is extremely common. Definitely among people that are in alcoholic relationships, but I don't, I don't know that, that that's a defining characteristic. I think this is common among specifically women, um, across, you know, the spectrum of, of trauma that they're dealing with. Um, so let me just read it and then I'll, and then I want to ask you a question. I know a million reasons why he doesn't love me anymore. Some of them may even be true. Even I didn't like the person I had become. Even I missed the woman he fell in love with. Some of the reasons are just the toxic thoughts of that voice. The one that tells me that I am unlovable for me and can only be loved for performing some role. This, um, you know, not self-hatred, but inability to see how valuable and wonderful you are and just doubt yourself, that heavy, heavy self-doubt. Like I said, I think it's, it's very common. You talked about you can only be loved for the role you play. Um, that is that is profound. It's profoundly vulnerable. I can't thank you enough for sharing that level of honesty. Um, and and I just have you moved past that? Um, do, is this a low point in self confidence, or is this something that kind of dogs you as life rolls on? I you know I mean it wasn't 
it, it wasn't me beating myself up so much as it was me acknowledging that voice that says these things, but also, you know, acknowledging what the situation does to you because you get to a point where, you know, you don't have that play and you don't have that connection anymore. And the person across from you isn't looking at you with love and attraction and, and all of that, you know, they're constantly, um, you know, you're constantly nagging at them to, you know, do all the stuff around the house that they're not doing or to stop drinking or to do, and, and you become that person you never wanted to be, you know, be, you know, you're, you're that, that, that nagging wife kind of thing that you never wanted to be. And you're not the person who, you know, used to go out and do adventures together and all of that stuff. And, and you want to be that person. You'd love to be that person, but the situation just doesn't allow you to do it. And on the other hand, you know, they become this person who just is so defensive that no matter what you say, you know, they're snapping at you and you know, you know how it goes. The, the progression of the alcohol, the person gets increasingly angry and increasingly sort of, you know, ranting at the world in general and all of that. So, um, you know, I think it's not so much being hard on myself is recognizing what that situation does to people. Because, you know, you can't sit there and stay all sunshine and roses and, hey, let's go to the movies or whatever, because, you know, you're, you're trying to, to cope with this really difficult crisis situation. And, and so, you know, I mean, I, I know that, you know, he wasn't seeing a lot of the attributes that he fell in love with because the situation just didn't allow it. It wasn't necessarily, you know, a self-criticism of myself. It's just seeing myself in that situation. You know, I saw which characteristics were highlighted and which ones weren't. And, you know, it's probably the case that we were both showing the better sides of ourselves to the outside world than we were to each other. So, you know, and then there is, of course, you know, I mean, there's always, everybody has that voice that, you know, calls into question, um, you know, are you lovable and all of that. But then I, I think there is this situation that when you're in a caretaker role over a long period of time like this, um, it is very easy to lose your personhood and just be that role, you know, to, to be keeping the house together, to be keeping you afloat, to be making sure that your alcoholic partner is getting some nutritious food to, you know, make sure the bills are getting paid, you know, taking care of the kids or the dog or the whatever. And, and the person, you know, they just, they count on you so much to do those things and they just assume you're going to do it. And at the end of the day, you ask yourself, you know, do they see me for anything other than that functional role anymore that I'm providing? So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a, a complete, I didn't really feel that as like personally against me. I knew it was something that was in common with anybody in this situation that I was in. Um, but you know, it's real. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, you, you felt that way too, didn't you, Sherry? Um, like you were performing, performing the role that was required to keep things moving along. Um, but there wasn't much in the way of connection. Mm -hmm. Um, could, did, did, would you echo, you know, what, what Liz is saying? Did, was that a feeling that you had in the relationship? Absolutely. The, the, caretaking and nurturing and within the naggy wife role yeah I mean I definitely feel like I had 
changed, but it was an, I had to evolve um, to become this new person because of the demands that the alcohol played, you know, in our roles at home. Um, so, yeah, I can imagine that I would, I remember those thoughts of, wow, I'm certainly not the person that you fell in love with. And, you know, you're not the person I fell in love with, but the roles needed to change and we yeah. fell into those parts very well. And it's not just a toxic substance. It's a toxic environment that it creates. Right. And this um, inability to be the people we originally were and love each other for the people we originally were, it just, it just gets sucked away from us. It's, it's diabolical. Um, yeah, it, it breaks you. Yeah. But I, I also think what happens then in the early sobriety is um, you've become so defined by those caretaking roles and all of a sudden they're taken away from you. Yeah. So then, you know, who are you and what's left of your relationship? And that's a really destabilizing period because it takes a long time. You know, I mean, one of the ways I, I explained it to friends is I said, okay, so the thing is we both need to figure out individually who we are now. And then we need to figure out if those two people still belong together. Oh, absolutely. That's and, a really honest assessment. You know, that's a difficult thing to step back and do. You want to just fight, fight, fight for the relationship. But, but maybe because of some of the um, severity of what you went through, you were able to have that realistic look. Let's see who we are and do we like each other? Mm. You know, when you talk about when that caretaker role gets taken away, you know, who am I? Who am I to this other person? You make me think of one of my favorite movies, When a Man Loves a Woman. <laughs> have you ever seen that movie, Liz? I have, and I watched it again um, shortly after we started talking because you kept going on about it. Actually, it, might, it might even, <laughs> actually, it might even have been before I joined the group because I was reading the blog post before I joined the group. So I might have rewatched it actually over Christmas break last year. But yeah, yeah I have yet I have yet to be able to get him to watch it, but... Well, yet another plug for it, um, <laughs> for, for our sponsor, a 40-year-old movie, <laughs> I Love the Woman. Um, so you talked a little bit about this, but I want to dive into it a little deeper because I think it's a really, really important topic. You had some time alone. You spent, was it three weeks in Italy? Is that right? A month. A month. I think I always say three weeks and you always correct me that it was a month. Uh, but the first part was work, but then you had some some Liz time some just yeah. you time and we got to see you a couple of times uh, three three times I think during the trip and you you just looked stronger and stronger and stronger every time so I know that you have made um to us a pitch for how important time away is and time away is not you know a bubble bath on a Thursday night time away is some some serious time away to rejuvenate and and grow stronger um can you talk a little bit about why you think that's so important and and a little bit about what it did for you yeah i think i think one of the reasons is really just basic physiology is as long as the person is nearby or you're worried about them your stress hormones are up and as long as your stress hormones are up you're not in recuperation mode 
And, um, and in this case, you know, it was also when I left, you know, he was in a situation where, you know, other people were taking care of him. And so that allowed me to, you know, just kind of step away from my worries and go off and actually, you know, enjoy my time and to just be in completely different thought processes and, and different, you know, different environments where there weren't reminders and it, you know, not just reminders of our situation, but, you know, there weren't reminders of my dog everywhere. And, you know, just, it was, and after having been basically imprisoned in my house for a year and a half, you know, just not in my house, you know, just, just that change was super good. And then I was in a situation where I was, um, I was, um, immersed in a group of friends. So, you know, I had a social group and there was a strong community and people I could talk to and then just a lot of relaxation. And I think also something that was really good for me was um, even just seeing clients I hadn't seen for two years because of the pandemic, like the joy of those reunions, because they're people who who we work with, but who we like. And, and it just, it was an opportunity for joy, for introspection, um, for just simple things like learning how to sleep again, because I had for years been sleep deprived and the past year or two had been having really, really bad issues where, you know, I couldn't get through a night without having insomnia in the middle of it. And, you know, I mean, exhaustion was certainly part of my problem. And, um, you know, getting away into a different situation and different air and getting, you know, exercise and, and sunshine every day and just all of that stuff together. But I do think the first starting point is just getting out of the situation that is causing your body to create all those stress hormones and having enough time that the levels come down because it doesn't happen right away. It takes a while for the stress hormone levels to come down. So, you know, I mean, a weekend is great. A week is better. I know a lot of people don't have the luxury to go away for a month. I was extremely lucky and, you know, had people who would house me and stuff. So it didn't cost me a fortune and things, but I, you know, obviously any break, even a few hours is helpful, but I think for physiological reasons, it needs to be enough time and enough distance. You need to know the other person's okay. And he did everything he could to try to um, ensure that I had the time away because by then he had come to appreciate how much I needed this physically. Um, and to the extent that he actually was going deeper into deeper into crisis while I was gone. And he hid that from me until I got back because he didn't want it to negatively impact my recovery time that he knew I needed. And boy, did I need it when I came back and found out what situation he was in. So yes. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a second. Um, I want to, I want to go back to, you talked about in, insomnia that you had battled be before this time away to reset. Uh, was that I mean, just purely stress related or is insomnia something that's been a part of your story for many, you know, for a long time? Um, no, it's, it's stress. I, I think it's mostly stress related. I think there's two things. I think um, it is mostly stress related. I also think I have a problem in that I am naturally not a morning person and my, the constraints on my life just make it that I have to get up early most of the time. Um, this year has been a bit of a difference because, you know, since I 
was on antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds and stuff, mornings became very, very difficult. So I started putting down some really strong boundaries about mornings, especially in the beginning when the meds were heavy. But, um, but I think it's also just that um, I've, I've been chronically sleep deprived without realizing it for a really long time because professional constraints got such that I had to, you know, be active much earlier in the morning, but I just, I, I don't go to bed at like, you know, eight or nine, even if I go up to the bedroom, I end up reading till later, whatever. And that's, you know, that's just my circadian rhythm. So I think it started with that and then the stress built in and then it becomes like a downward spiral because the more tired you are, the less resilient you are, the more stress there is, blah, 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 blah and off it goes. Well, that's just a, a huge uh, selling point on why that time away, that time alone, that time yeah. without, without the morning requirements yeah. is so important. You know, so you live in Europe. Uh, I, I grew up with this mantra and it carried into my professional life as well of, of work hard, play hard. And I always looked at the fact that like my first job that I got out of college, I think, I think, I, I think after six months of being at that company, they gave me one week's vacation for the next year. And I always looked at the European model, which is much, many more weeks, right? Like four weeks at a minimum when you start or something like that. I looked at that as wimpy and come on, you never get, you know, this is why we're more productive. We get, we're tougher, we get more done. And then, wow, I ended up an alcoholic. So, so maybe that wasn't the greatest, uh, uh, motto and, and, and way to look at things. And so my, my thinking on that has just completely shift shifted. I think anyone, when somebody says to me, ah, oh, I believe in work hard, play hard. It really worries me for that person and what's mm -hmm. going on in the background. Um, and so just, I just want to just highlight how much I appreciate how much you've shared about the importance of this time away. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And you, you did, you know, you did service, um, to, to all of our listeners in, in explaining that um, you, you recognize that you were fortunate to be able to take that amount of time and that that's not a luxury that everyone gets. But if you can find a way um, to, to maximize the amount of time that you have alone, you know, for most people going on vacation, there's nothing relaxing about that. That's just taking the carnival on the road. Um, certainly if you've got kids and you're, yeah. you're going to Disney or something, you know, everyone thinks vacation, we got to go do something fun and exciting. Well, there's, you're, you're defeating the purpose of, uh, the, the, yeah, the mental health side, the relaxation. Mm -hmm. So, um, I just want to highlight how important I think, um, your experience there and, and what you've shared is find that time away as much as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the thing is we have a tendency to, you know, drive ourselves until basically we break down and then we have to take, you know, really long breaks and it's disruptive because it's not planned for and all of that. And I think, you know, the drive for efficiency in our systems and everything, it's taken out the, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't remember the word, the redundancy that is necessary to be able to allow people to have, because people go on vacations, but what do they do? They check their email every day. And yeah. those, those don't actually help you. You actually need to like shut off completely. And you really only start to feel the effects if you're gone several weeks, because, you know, the first week you're, you're 
unwinding and trying to disconnect and the second week it starts to be okay and by the third week you're actually in the moment and relaxing and you know getting the benefit from it and that's one of the problems of you know the short vacation model is you just don't ever get to that point where your body is recovering and it's the same thing with um, evenings and weekends I've gotten much fiercer over time about you know boundaries around my work day and my work week I mean, obviously there are exceptions. You know, I have a colleague at the moment whose dad had a stroke. And so, you know, we're doing stuff evenings and weekends and stuff and in order to try and get through that. But, but overall, I've really come to appreciate that, you know, we just physically need this and we'll actually perform better if we rest. So there's no point working until you wear yourself out so much that you've become totally inefficient and non-productive. You know, you might as well be really, really productive when you're at work and really, really recovering when you and recuperating when you're not at work rather than mixing the two and doing neither well. Yeah, and, and technology is both a blessing and a curse, right? It, it allows for a, a lot of um, high-speed connectivity and communication, but it also allows you to take work with you in a three inch chunk of plastic and metal in your pocket. And that's, that, that makes that checking email while you're on vacation, um, all the more easy. And, uh, and the, I, I really love your point about the redundancy. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. For many of us, we have to work like dogs to get ready to go on vacation, to do weeks worth of extra work in advance. And then when we get back, nothing's been done for us while we were gone. And it's, I mean, you need a vacation within 48 hours of returning from vacation. Um, so I think it's yeah. a really, really important topic. I don't think this is a throwaway, um, you know, oh, that's great. There was someone on the podcast that could take some time off. No, I think this is really, it's important to our mental health. It's important to the success of our relationships, of our recoveries, whether we're the alcoholic or the loved one. I think it's super important. Yeah, actually, I want want to read my out of office message to you because it makes people laugh, but it's it's relevant to this because it says, research shows vacations are beneficial to our health and work performance. And then it cites Chattel 2018, which is an actual study. And then it says, to replicate this research, I'm conducting a participant observation study. I'll be away from the office until the day I come back. And that always makes people laugh, but, but it's true. I mean, it's based on research and, you know, that makes it really hard for people to push the boundaries when you say to them, you know, I'm doing something science said is good for me, not only my health, but my work. So. Oh, absolutely. That, that is, that is the antithesis of work hard, play hard. I love that. I love that. I might have to copy it. <laughs> so, so you got back from your uh, rejuvenating, regenerative time away. Um, and shortly after returning, you faced a relapse that your husband had had. Um, he, he came to you and explained that he had been drinking. Um, one of the things that strikes me is just how you handled that. The the interaction that we had with you over those first couple of weeks. I mean, you looked unfazed, sister. You looked as strong as strong can be. And and I want you to talk about that because I can, you know, I'm just picturing, oh my God, she did this wonderful thing for her own mental health. It's so awesome. And then she comes back and and the shit hits the fan. And I almost expected you to crumble. And the exact opposite happened. 
Yeah, was it was uh, it was ironic because we were actually on an Echoes call when my husband came in and broke the news to me. So as as Sherry has said, you guys got to watch it live, you know. <laughs> um, and I mean, the first day was rough because I was just you know shell shocked because I found out that he had been drinking, he'd been lying to me about it, and he, he'd never, ever lied about his drinking. He had always been very, very upfront, you know, from day one that he had this problem, it ran in his family, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he had never hidden from me the fact that, you know, he had these issues. Um, but what had happened was he'd started drinking when I was away, he didn't want to ruin my vacation, because he knew how badly I needed to to recover and to recuperate. And then when I came back, he didn't know how, he kind of got trapped because he didn't know how to broach the subject at that point. And, and, you know, things were going so well between us. I don't think he wanted to kind of ruin it either. Um, but then what happened was he had a car accident and the truth had to come out kind of thing. So, um, so, yeah, I think that if that had happened before I left, I think it would have been the end of me. I don't know how I would have coped with all of that before going, but I had, you know, newfound strength and resilience and, you know, my batteries were recharged to a higher level than they had been in years. And um, that allowed me to work through it, you know, on the first day um, when he kind of, you know, like hit me with all of this. I just, at one point in time, I just, I just looked at him and I just turned around and I walked out because I just, I just needed to go and sit and, you know, kind of like work through this. Um, and he, he actually came and found me and, you know, was trying to see how I was feeling. And, one of the things that um, I think helped was even before I got back, he had already started talking to his doctor about going back to rehab, going back to the clinic. Um, so he was taking this seriously, even though he was succumbing to it. It was like there were two of him. There was, you know, the the addict who couldn't resist the alcohol. And then there was the person who was saying, but this isn't what I want. And they were like coexisting. I wouldn't even say they were in battle. They were coexisting side by side. But the fact that he was sincerely going through the steps to address it himself, I think was a huge help for me. I think if he hadn't been doing that and had just been drinking, I probably would have handled it very, very differently. But, you know, there was a sincere attempt to try to get the situation back in hand. And it, it took him a few weeks for various reasons, not all of them his doing. Um, but he finally left um, about 10 days ago um, and is back and is in a much, much, much better clinic than he was in the last year when he first went off to, to, for care. Um, seems to be doing very well you know, not just as far as he's, he's in a good place, but, you know, he seems to be like emotionally coming out of his 
his depressive crisis and seems to be doing a lot better. And, and his situation is very complicated because he's got like three different pathologies and it's like the medicine for one can contribute to the other. So it's like this chain reaction kind of thing. And one of the things they're doing is uh, for one of his pathologies, they've, they've taken him off the meds and they're in the process of switching him to a very different treatment process to try to avoid uh, contributing to the depression. So hopefully that will also be a big help for him in trying to get some stability again. But yeah, coming back to me, um, you know, once I got through the shock, um, I just kind of decided, okay, what bits of this were mine to deal with it and what bits were his to deal with. And I let him deal with as much of it as he could for various reasons. I mean, there were things he couldn't because like the car and the insurance were in my name. So there were things I had to do. Um, but, um, you know, I let him do his things. I, you know, made it clear to him that as long as he was still trying to to resist the alcohol and to take control of his life back that he had my support. That didn't mean I was happy about all of the decisions he had made that I thought some of them were incredibly irresponsible and bad decisions, but I could simultaneously think that and, you know, love and support him. And, um, and from there, you know, we had, we had a few run-ins, we had a few crosswords and things, but for the most part, I've also over this past year started to learn not to take the things he says to me at face value and to start trying to understand the emotions that are behind the words. And this goes back to sort of how we started this podcast, the, you know, I don't think I love you anymore thing was, I'm not feeling anything anymore not even love for you. And so I'm afraid that, you know, that I've stopped loving you because he couldn't think of any alternatives or the alternatives he could think of were even worse, which is that he was no longer capable of any emotion or I don't know what. And so when he, when he said things to me <laughs> over the period of these weeks, when we were dealing with his relapse, instead of reacting immediately to the what I first heard, you know, kind of superficially what he was saying, I'd kind of stop and let the conversation develop a little bit to try and understand what he was actually trying to communicate beyond the words. Um, like at one point in time, he said to me, you know, um, I'm a little bit resentful to you about the fact that I'm going back there because of, you know, things that happened to us last year where he feels I betrayed him. And, and, and I just looked at him and I'm like, okay, um, if this relapse had happened in January, I could maybe accept that, but you've had like eight months in order to seek alternative help to deal with those emotions. So, you know, I'm having a little, and he's like, okay, but, but it's only, you know, it's only a little bit. I mean, there's all the other stuff too. And I said, well, I don't think that's particularly fair if you've got like, um, you know, a camel with a bunch of straw on its back and you put one last straw on that you blame the straw and not the rest of the not the rest of what's on the camel's back. And, and he says, oh yeah, absolutely. It's not fair. I completely admit that. And, you know, we could get to a point where we could get down to, you know, what he was basically saying is I'm so scared about going back. And 
I'm dreading so how horrible it's going to be. And it's really, really easy to cling to this one thing and say that this is, this is the thing that I couldn't cope with. That was too much. And, and to, you know, channel all of my negative energy at that one event, because I just can't deal with the rest of it. The rest of it's too much. And so that's helped me too is, and I think that's probably part of, because I've been away, but of of course, also, you know, the therapy, the mindfulness, the yoga, all the stuff. But um, that also really helped was we could have those conversations where those difficult things could be said, but because both of us were calmer than we'd been before I went away, instead of us getting defensive and it turned in turning into a fight, they actually became opportunities to connect and to exchange. And that's something that's completely different than it was before the summer. That's amazing. That's, yeah. that's really, really great. You, you mentioned that he's in a better situation, the place where he is this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, so am I reading into that? I, I think I know the answer. This is not just a traditional, here are the 12 steps. We're going to work through these 12 steps. Everything is about alcohol. He's at a treatment facility where they're looking at some of these underlying issues that we've discussed a little bit, right? They're working on the stuff that caused you to need to drink. Yeah, I mean, there, there are places here that do just addiction, but a lot of places you go over here actually do like mental health in general. Um, and one of the problems with the place where he was last year is they tended to do a lot of stuff towards the heavy end of the spectrum. And so somebody like him was kind of an easy case and you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease kind of thing. Plus it was COVID. Um, so that meant that like, um, there were fewer activities and stuff because they couldn't have as many people in a room together. Plus he was there during the vacation period. And for some reason that I can't understand a mental health clinic doesn't bring on, you know, like temporary staff or like have enough staff to cover the vacation period. So they're understaffed during the vacation. So, I mean, there were just a lot of reasons why last year was not a good a good situation. So yeah, this lack of redundancy. <laughs> exactly. This year he's in a place where physically it's just nicer. It's um it's in the grounds of a little castle and the landscaping is just lovely and it's big enough that you can walk around and not feel like you're a caged lion in a zoo kind of thing. And it seems to have much more of a sense of community and you don't have those cases at the heavy end of the mental health spectrum and the staff just seem warmer and there are more activities and they're paying more attention instead of just, you know, drugging him to get him through withdrawal, they're actually giving psychological care. And when he went, he was very adamant that he did not want to go in with a dossier that was flagged as an alcoholic. He wanted to go in with a dossier that was, he's a depressive who has alcoholic consequences. And he wanted to work on the depression while he was there. And that was a very strong demand from him. And I think part of what was different this year is he is being much more of an actor in the whole thing. And maybe he needed the experience last year in order to be able to, to know how to frame his demands this time. You know, I don't know if he could have done it if he hadn't been through the experience last year. But, you know, this year he was very clear. This is what I want. This is what I don't want. You know, I have objectives. I, I have plans. Um, and he, he just seemed to be much more of an architect of the experience this time around. But the actual environment is also just much more positive. That, that's a huge sign of progress. Even in the face of relapse, that's a huge sign of progress yeah. that, that he's um, 
taken that approach. And I just, I, I, I love how you, you called it, um, you're, you are a something in his case, a depressive, but I think all of us who fall into addiction to alcoholism or addiction to alcohol, we, um, we have this underlying issue with not alcoholic tendencies, but, um, I can't remember consequences, alcoholic consequences. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a really great way to word it. And I, I hope we can, um, increase the frequency with which we look at it that way. There's, there's some reason we're drinking. We're not just drinking because we're, you know, shame filled bad people. Um, there's something going on there. I love that. The other thing that I love about this segment of the story, you know, we read the, the, the part of your essay where you talked about how you could only be loved for performing some role. And largely what you were describing was that role of caretaker. Um, I love how you separated out these are the parts of this that you're going to fix. And these are the parts of this that I'm going to fix. And you only fixed the stuff that you were kind of legally required to, because your name was on the insurance <laughs> or whatever. Um, that ability to have boundaries, stick to your boundaries and, and detach um, is, is really important for you. Um, it's, it's evident that how much it's done for you just in your demeanor and the way you're carrying yourself through this. How did he react to that? This idea that I'm not going to clean up the mess for you. Most of it is on you to figure out. Um, he actually, it depended on what time of day I talked to him. Okay. Conversations we had in the evening didn't go so well. Um, but conversations in the morning and into the afternoon did. And, you know, at one point in time, I just said to him, I said, okay, here's the deal. Um, I'm getting a new car. You don't get to drive it. I don't want you on my insurance. And, um, you know, you'll figure out how to get around. And he just kind of looked at me and he said, um, yeah, that seems reasonable, you know, and just, and, you know, like I said, I, I have to say the thing, one of the things that has allowed me not to get too, um, I guess, caught up in this relapse is, despite the fact that he was drinking again, he was otherwise doing all the right things. You know, he wasn't in a downward spiral. He had slipped and he was trying to fix it and it wasn't necessarily going as fast as I would have liked. But, you know, he'd already started that process before I came back. And that's just so different than watching the person you love just, you know, getting sucked down the drain. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a powerful story. Liz, I can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. I want to go back to something that we, we read earlier that you wrote. I have to learn to do hard things and I have to do it alone. I have to confront and traverse the storms. I think the progress that you've made in this regard is remarkable. Um, and I think it's so important, not just to your own mental health um, and your ability to to navigate, but honestly, my impression is it's really important to your relationship too. I don't think when um, you're in the state where um, you know you're flailing and you're two drowning people um, pulling each other down, there's any hope for the relationship to survive. But as sure. an independent, strong person, I think there's a chance, and um, it's it certainly it certainly seems that way. 
Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. You know, I mean, a year ago, even though he was sober, we were both wondering where our relationship was going. And, you know, we were both convinced it wasn't going anywhere good. And, you know, the first half of this year was really rough on that front. Um, but, you know, I can't really speak for him, but I think, you know, we're both in a much better place about what we think the prospects are for the future. So, and interestingly enough, Monday is our 10th wedding anniversary, so. Well, that's great. Congratulations, happy anniversary. Thank you. And Monday, the Monday that you reference is when this episode will be published. So- Well, there you go. Um, we can all celebrate that together. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience and what you've learned and, and just, a ton of great advice and suggestions here. And uh, we just, we love having the opportunity to have gotten to know you and we want to continue to see where this goes. Thanks so much. Well, thank you to both of you for having created this community because I think we all find a lot of strength in it and, you know, a lot of love and I've been particularly touched by it in recent weeks because some people who have joined who I think are in some of the roughest situations I've seen so far and to be able to see, you know, that there's a community there waiting for them and to help them and to help all of us. You know, I don't know if I'd be where I am today if I hadn't found this group. So, you know, to anybody out there who's listening, who doesn't have a support group like this, they don't have to join this one, but, you know, find, find your group because it makes such a difference. And, Honestly, starting to talk to you guys into this group was the beginning of my being able to talk to other people and, and breaking that solitude that you feel when you're deep in it. It really is important. It, it changes everything to be able to talk to other people and to be heard. So thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. Gosh, we just love you to death. Thanks for, thanks for talking to us, Liz. And um, again, happy anniversary. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.